We're going to be looking at the issue of rewards this morning, which is another leadership theme. Rewards. What do the scriptures say about rewards, and how does that play out in our lives, both personally and professionally? I'd like you to turn to Hebrews chapter 11 for our first text, because there we see an important principle in verse 6. But before we go to verse 6, I ought to point out the uh, most, a very important verse, verse 1. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith is always based upon that which is not seen and that which is not uh, yet. So it's based upon the invisible and that which is future. And so it, faith is something that is ba- related, though, to hope. It, and hope is always positive in the direction of real gain. And then we see in verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I want to stress, and we're going to say this again, that rewards are not mercenary. God speaks a good deal about them and says that we are motivated by rewards. If you look back at your life, you'll know this is the case. So it would be foolish for us to suppose that that's some kind of an inferior thing. Rewards become mercenary if, if it's just for a gain that doesn't relate to a real good in the sense of um, what we're called to be and to accomplish. For example, if I married a woman for her money, that would be mercenary. But if I married a woman out of love, and if whether she had money or not, then the marriage itself, the end of the courtship, is in fact the reward. In other words, the reward there is the relationship. And I want to stress that in rewards in the kingdom of heaven, it relates a good deal to that word relationships. I'm pretty convinced that um, as I've evaluated the different arenas of reward, there seem to be four that I can identify, and they all seem to relate to this issue of our relationships. Uh, One of those issues has to do with the degree to which we reflect the glory of God in our unique capacities to do so. It has to do with glory and uh, good report. Uh, The idea of good report before God is something that C.S. Lewis talks about in The Weight of Glory. That good report before God is not a selfish thing. It's the desire of a child to receive the accolades of the Father and to be pleasing to the to one, one, one he loves. Uh, it relates not only to glory and to reflecting God's uh, glorious attributes in your unique way, but it also relates to uh, responsibility or arenas of service in the kingdom. And I believe that uh, reward relates to one's ability to have uh, an arena of influence and of, res- of responsible service in the kingdom of God. But this, a third one that I think is important has to do with our relationships now. And as I love and serve people now, part of my reward will be people who will be there in the kingdom to welcome me and for us to enhance those relationships and continue on. So that um, a person who has been rich in relationships in this world will be rich in the next. Now, I don't believe it's static, and I do believe that we will grow and go further up and higher in, and that ultimately heaven will be a layering experience, and the um, regrets and remorse of this world will be dealt with and overcome, but I think that this, so there'll be a progressive dimension, but I do think that there genuinely is a difference, that that the quality of our lives on this planet really have an impact on eternity. (laughs) But I think the highest and the fourth um, is our capacity to appreciate the glory of God, our capacity to receive or to know him or to apprehend the, the, the beatific vision, the vision that leads to joy. And I believe that some people in this world may be accustoming themselves to his presence more 
and that it makes sense that uh, there would be a greater capacity for us to know him. But again, it all has to do with, re with relationships. And again, I think that's going to be not static. It will continue to grow. But I think that um, these are things to be taken seriously. Jesus speaks a good deal about it, as we'll see. In Hebrews, though, the idea is that um, faithfulness relates to trusting in God's promises, though they're not yet visible. Now, in verse 13 of Hebrews 11, all these people were still living by faith when they died. He refers to a number of uh, Old Testament saints. And they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So as I see it, he's saying, what are you longing for is a big issue. Uh, we've said this before, that you and I, in a way, become the sum total of our aspirations. You become shaped by that which you long for. You are shaped by your heart's desire. And the soul becomes great when it longs for, for things that are truly great. The world does not offer true greatness. Uh, the, only, only God offers that because he's saying that the world with its various promises of people and position and possession will let us down. But he offers us something better, a heavenly city, not an earthly city, something far greater. Abraham, Noah, Enoch, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, all these men lived a life of faith in spite of the fact that they, their reward was in the future or in the distance. And I think that effective leaders understand this and use recognition and compensation to lift morale and improve performance. It's certainly an issue that uh, we discover that good leaders will seek to find ways to affirm and encourage and uh, satisfy people who are in their employ. Uh, rewards um, relate to another issue. Turn to Jeremiah 29, verses 11 to 14, and we're going to see that God is consistently portrayed in Scripture as one who loves us and wants us to receive his joy. He's not a celestial Scrooge, but rather he really delights in rewarding his people. Now, Jeremiah chapter 29 is written, at, by this point, most of the people in Israel had been sent off to Babylonian captivity. Uh, Jeremiah had been warning them for decades about this event that would come as a consequence of their idolatry and corruption. But now he writes a letter to these exiles, and in verse 11, gives them a word of hope. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in a future. That's a verse you ought to cling to, because God has plans for you in spite of the uncertainties and vicissitudes of this world. He's got plans for us to prosper us and to benefit us and to, not to harm us, but ultimately he, his desire is to give you and me a future and a hope. And we need a future and a hope. Many times our earthly plans fall short of our hopes and expectations. How many of, our, of us have experienced dashed hopes and broken dreams? And yet at the same time, we know that God's giving us something that will not let us down, which, was, which is actually something that we're assured we will enjoy. It's an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Hebrews 11 tells us that your reward is not really going to be largely in this world. 
that really Hebrews 11 says they were looking for a country and they realized that the promises were going to be something that they would receive in, not on this planet. They weren't looking for a heavenly kingdom. So the danger we have is the prosperity gospel, buying into the idea that God wants you every, to have all the prosperity and so forth in this world. That doesn't play well in third world countries, by the way. So only in America would we come up with that silly gospel. It's totally incompatible with the biblical vision. It's where people want to manipulate God into being a cosmic slot machine who just satisfies our greedy desires rather than to realize that he's, that's not, that's the, magic is not the same as a right relationship with God. That there's no assurance that your business or your family or things will go well the way you would like them to go. You don't come to Christ to have a better business. You don't come to Christ to have a better family or to have ba raise better children or have better health. You come to Christ because that's your desperate need. Now, the others, all things being equal, I think God will give you confidence and assurance and a comfort that he is working in your life in spite of the adversities and affliction. But you do not come to him and put your hope in what he didn't promise. You put your hope in his promises, and ultimately you look to him. You can't control the outcome. Faithful to the process, letting God determine the outcome in his own time and in his way, which is generally different from ours. So you come to Christ, really, because of that's your ultimate deepest need. And ultimately, we discover that he knows what we need and what we truly desire. I say here that God longs to bless and reward his people. Let me read this text for you. I just read the first verse, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found with you, by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. So again, that's the context of being brought back out of your Babylonian captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. So it's a word of consolation. But again, I think that there's a principle of application here for us, that we can understand that God has a future and a hope for us as well as his, as his believers. So the idea here is that we serve a God who rewards those who earnestly seek him. Ezekiel chapter 18 puts it this way. I won't, I won't turn, you don't need to turn to it. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? And again, Ezekiel 33, verse 11 says, Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? And so this idea here is that God invites his people to choose life. At the end of Deuteronomy 30, he says, This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursings. Now choose life that you and your children may live. So it's a word of uh, exhortation. And it's a word that relates to our motivational system. And we all have some motivational system. If you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, we discover something that's true. Whether you like this or not, this is the reality. So the, the wise thing for us to do would be to, to adjust our perception in accordance with biblical reality rather than to allow ourselves to be seduced by the false promises of a fleeting world. And biblical reality is found in this text, 2 Corinthians 5.10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, that's a very sobering word. If that text is true, 
The most important uh, encounter, appointment you'll ever have will be that encounter. As I, as I sometimes put it, it's easy to lip sync in the chorus of life, but each one of us is going to be singing solo before God. Now that's a sobering word. Imagine the idea that you were that uh, one hour from now you'd be in a car accident, and all of a sudden the next thing you know you're standing before Jesus Christ. That's a that's a heady thought. Who's to know it's an hour or a year? The fact, or, or, or and there's a thousand ways to take you out of here. Car accidents only one. There's there's lots of ways, and there's no control. I don't care how well you exercise and eat and all that. You can't really control when you're going to be called. But when he calls you, you will stand before him. That will be the face you will look upon and you'll realize that's the one you've been looking for all your life, even though you often thought he might be the enemy of your joy. And it's going to be a frankly frightening thought as well as, as an um, ex exciting thought. Frightening because it's the idea of having, for the first time, an awareness of how he perceived our lives the sin of unused potential and all that, but he then also wipes away every tear and rewards us. If anyone's in Christ, he has a foundation. And if by trusting in Christ, it's a question not of condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that is a that judgment seat is a, is a context of reward. And he will reward you for the wood, not for the wood, hay, and stubble, but for the gold, silver, and precious things. So it's almost the image in 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3 of you having this building that you've constructed out of an alloy of good and, good and things and also things that will not withstand the fire. He lights the place up and whatever endures on the foundation, which is Christ, will, will remain and you receive a reward for that. Now, frankly, we are all building our building right now with an alloy of gold, silver, and precious things and wood, hay, and stubble. What's done in the spirit is the gold, silver, and precious things. The things we do in the flesh, and I include ministry in the flesh, is wood, hay, and stubble. You can preach the Bible, you can teach, you can minister, and if it's done in the flesh, it's still wood, hay, and stubble. You can, you can do your work with excellence as unto God. You can cut a deal before, and do, do it and in a way that you seek to be pleasing to Christ, and that will receive a reward because it's done in the spirit. Again, remember what I said before. I can't repeat this enough. What seems to be secular is become spiritual when the focus of your heart's the eternal. So if the secular becomes spiritual when the focus of your heart's the eternal, and that means every one of us, you are not in career ministry necessarily. We're all full-time ministers, and you've got to buy that mindset that your work becomes your arena of worship. And that is, that is your network, that is your platform. Thus do it be, before God with skill and excellence and do it in his power. And thus your work becomes gold, <clears throat> silver, and precious things rather than wood, say, and hay, and stubble. For my part, I can teach the study and be in the flesh and I'll get nothing for that. You see the idea then that then what appears to be spiritual becomes secular when the focus of your heart's the temporal. So again, only God knows the heart. He knows the focus of your heart's what matters, not the, just the, the, the fruit of your hands. Because everything's going to burn up. Everything on this planet that's material will burn up. Uh, the earth and its works will be destroyed, but the one who does the will of God, that person abides forever. So we seek to do that, and our desire would be to use our remaining years well and wisely. The years are few. They are ephemeral. They, they fly so quickly. And to be frank with you, I find it hard to believe I'm as old as I am. 
be perfectly honest with you, you're, here I'm cel celebrating my 35th anniversary. I can't be that old. Well, Carrie and I were only uh, 10 and 11 when we got married. <laughs> we were very, very young. But, um, you know, my, pers my perspective is I, f I don't feel as old as my chronological years, and yet I know that, you know, and it'd be, I'd be really deceiving myself to think that I'm not at the halfway point yet. That'd be a real deception. At, at the age of 57, uh, I'm past halfway. <laughs> yeah. So we realize, but you know, how many decades do you have? And even if, you're, even if you're 23 years old, how many decades can you count on? You don't know if you have one left. You see what I'm saying? So you have to live prudently. Uh, the fact is that um, the wise thing would be to leverage these few years on this planet for eternal gain. And to do your work seeking his reward. Let me, let me continue on. So in this text then, we see this image here that we long to hear. And Jesus said, we, we, rewards aren't mercenary. It's not mercenary to desire to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master, Matthew 25. It's not mercenary to hear that. It's, it's, it's actually that for which you've been created to hear his pleasure. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, James 1.12 says, because when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life that God promises to those who love him. So the point here is in comparison to what God wants to give us, the best in this world the world can offer is toys, trinkets, trinkets and tinsel. It's not enough. It's that well-known phrase by C.S. Lewis that uh, I've given you before in Weight of Glory, that our problem isn't that our desires are too strong, strong, our problem is that we actually, we long for too little. That's what I'm arguing. If you buy the aspirations of the world, you are desiring too little. You're selling yourself too cheaply. Fact is that uh, we are half-hearted creatures, Lewis writes, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite, infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're too easily pleased. And as I've said before, I know a lot of men who are comparing their mud pie with another person's mud pie. And one says, I have more mud pies than you do. The other one says, well, I use better quality mud than you did. Uh, but the point is, it's all mud. And, um, and it, all, it all disappears in the end. So we all know that. Don't give your life in exchange for a bunch of junk. That's all going to burn off, burn away, or be taken over by somebody else. Pursue that which will endure. That's the point. And, and again, your business, it's a good thing. It's nothing wrong with seeking to have a profitable business. But at the end of the day, your business isn't just, you are not, you don't go to work just to make a, a living. You go to work because it provides you an arena of influence and a context for uh, sharing and ministering. It gives you a context in which you can mix it up in the world. And so you work it, mix it up in the marketplace, and God gives you divine appointments with people. And by doing your work with excellence, diligence, skill, and, and care, as unto the king and not to impress people, you then become a person whose model and influence manifests an eternal hope, and you become attractive, and you do it in such a way that you seek to be pleasing to the king. I would, I would next turn us to 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 4 to 5. The Lord appears to Solomon... And in 1 Kings 9, 4, says, As for you, if you will walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, 
and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. Sadly, Solomon began well, but he ended poorly. This wisest of men became a fool in his old age. Because of multiplication of women and wealth and so forth, he allowed his heart to be seduced by the false uh, gods of these other nations. But God's promise to Solomon included a larger perspective. The issue here is that, he, that his work was contributing to God's eternal plan. And so Solomon's reward would transcend what he found in, in any pay envelope. And the issue here is that your reward is more than just your paycheck. Your reward is being a part of something where your work is being done as unto God, and thus you are participating in a bigger program than that. That you can contribute to God's eternal work and so that um, the idea there's a satisfying reward in having added value to people's lives. The people who work for you um, are people whose lives you can invest in and you add value to their lives. And furthermore, you're participating in God's plan for the ages so that you want to pay a fair wage and, and treat your employees with dignity and respect, but you can add an initial incentive or perspective uh, reward that money can't buy. And that's the idea here then of doing your work as unto God and also seeking his deeper reward more than just provision. We look to work, don't we, for our provision and our satisfaction or our significance. And again, I argue that God wants to be the source of our provision, and he wishes to be the source of our significance. If we look to him, then we discover our true identity. Finally, John chapter 10, verses 7 to 10. I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill, steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they might have what? Life and have it to the full or have it with abundance. Again, his promise isn't just merely eternal duration, endless duration, but an abundant quality of newness of life, a quality of life that if you could drink uh, from that draft for five minutes and come back to this earth, your whole perspective would be changed. You would then realize that no sorrow or adversity is as anything in comparison to five minutes of pleasure in that form of life. We haven't seen anything yet. I'm arguing the reason why heaven is not much of a motivator for us is the deficiency of our imaginations and the deficiency of our, of our grasp of Scripture to allow that to infuse our desires and our motivations and to give us a greater longing. Remember what I often stress, my desire is to teach you and me that nothing in this planet will satisfy your deepest longings. I want you to reach the point where you desire so much that you finally admit that it cannot be sustained by this world. That your desires should be enhanced so much but you come into contact with your deep, deep longings and realize only God can satisfy them. And when you know that, then you realize that this life is preparation for your eternal citizenship. Therefore, I want to use this time well, because the, the years are brief. The opportunities are now. 
And you're going to have opportunities now that you'll never ever again have. So each day becomes a mini life. What can I do this day, this very day, living each day by itself, that would be pleasing to him? It would not be a bad prayer to ask. Lord, what is it I can do this day that would be pleasing to you? And as I often say, you ch the chances are it's not on your planner. And so he may give you an opportunity with somebody, maybe a phone call, maybe something he prompts you to do, whatever it might be, but that might be your opportunity to be pleasing to him. A good word, a word of encouragement, an act of kindness, any number of things can be something that can have eternal merit and consequence. A job well done and skillfully executed can be something that can be very pleasing to him. Again, I just saw Chariots of Fire because I'm going to be using it uh, as an, to illustrate two kinds of heroes when I'm speaking for CBMC in uh, Raleigh. And I, I'm struck again by Harold uh, Little, who was the Flying Scotsman, and by the contrast with Harold, uh, Eric Little and Harold Abrahams. And Eric Little was a man who was called, and Harold Abrahams was a man who was driven. Both were heroes. Both sacrificed enormously. But both were heroes, but one was a called man, one was a driven man. And it makes all the difference in the world. And I'd like to illustrate that. But that wonderful scene when he tells his, his sister Jenny... Uh, outside of Edinburgh there where they go for a little walk and he tells her because she's terrified that he is going to miss his calling to go to Scotland I mean to China he was that's where he was supposed to be she felt and yet what is he doing frittering away these years trying to train to uh, to be a runner and you remember that what he says to her he says uh, Jenny God did make me for a purpose he made me for China uh, and I am going to go to China but he also made me fast and when I run, I feel his pleasure. And he says, when I, to, to do, to, you know, he says, you were right. It's not a matter of just uh, winning a trophy. No, to, to run well, to do that is to be pleasing to him. And it is something that would be honoring to him. And so he wants to do whatever he's called to do, whatever he's been given the ability. So ask yourself this day, what is it you can do this day where you would feel God's pleasure? Not a bad way to live. If, if each day I could seek to feel his pleasure and be pleasing to him this day, I believe that you will enjoy not only pleasure in this life, but reward in the next.